chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 here in just a moment, I want to welcome you, thankful, I'm thankful that you're here tonight and uh, we're glad to be able to gather together and to worship and to study and uh, Looking forward to uh, great things. I hope that you'll uh, be in prayer for Sunday services. Of course, uh, we kicked off our fall schedule this past Sunday uh, in a in a great way. We had uh, we had 180 between those two services Sunday. Had 111 in Sunday school. That's tremendous. Uh, this sanctuary seats 120 in a perfect world. 150 like it's set up. So. Uh, we, we far outran that number on Sunday, and we're thankful for that. And uh, I hope the Lord will continue to give us that type of opportunity. Uh, and, and so thank you for your part in that. Uh, tonight we're going to look at another one of those supreme principles that we've been talking about. Uh, we're going to consider tonight uh, attitude. And uh, we'll read uh, together first and then open in prayer and ask the Lord to Bless our time together. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 15 of Joshua chapter 5. Very, very familiar three verses. I'm confident that you are aware of them. And uh, some, of my, uh, some of my favorite imagination in the scriptures happens over these three verses here. And uh, so I hope it affects you that way too. It says in verse 13 of chapter 5 of the book of Joshua and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as a captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. I want to talk to you tonight about attitude. And I think that we get a good picture of Joshua's attitude from this passage. We get a little bit of a picture of Joshua's uh, toughness in this passage as well, in my opinion. Uh, but that may be my imagination playing games with me. Um, would you pray with me now? I know that we just opened in prayer, but I want you to pray specifically that the Lord will show you something tonight that you've not seen before, that He'll give you a truth to carry with you tonight, uh, something to walk in obedience to as you leave tonight, something personal. Would you pray that way? Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, again for this time to come together. And uh, Father, we're so grateful for your love and your kindness and for your mercy. And we're so thankful for the word of God that is inerrant, infallible, inspired, and eternal. Lord, I pray tonight as we look through uh, this little passage and we consider some thoughts and some ideas and some concurrent passages. Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd speak to us, uh, teach us, guide us, help us, Lord, in the way uh, that we speak tonight, that as we think about 
attitude and mind set and thought process. And Lord, that we would leave here tonight seeking to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called, that we would leave here tonight uh, desiring to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That, Lord, we would see these truths and recognize them for their value. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us tonight and encourage us. Strengthen us, Father, as we always pray for the days that lie ahead. For you and you alone know what those are. Lord, I pray for your preparation in Jesus' name. Amen. We, um, we've been looking at, at these principles, this idea of calling and leading and education. Attitude and reputation are the, the two that we'll look at tonight and next week, uh, Lord willing. And uh, we're going to look at the attitude specifically of Joshua. Attitude is a funny, funny thing. It's a funny word because... Uh, when we think about attitude or we speak about attitude, there is this, uh, this conjuring that occurs in the mind of snake oil salesmen and uh, uh, that idea of, of uh, speaking something into existence or, you know, the idea of talking yourself into a good place. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you, you come up with that names like uh, Nightingale and... Uh, 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 Ziegler and, and these other names that are all about attitude and we think we, if we're not careful we'll get in this idea that attitude is something of a secular idea. It's not. Uh, it is not. Uh, the book of Philippians indeed the entire book is written about your mind and the way you think. It's a whole book. And uh, so attitude is a very important Thing, and it should not be written off as some secular thought or some uh, witchcraft or sorcery or something like that. Uh, the way we think and the way we approach life is important. And not only for personal success and, and personal comfort and for uh, personal joy, uh, but from the perspective of others seeing Christ in you. Uh, they're not going to see that with a, a coiled up, nasty, snake-like attitude. They're just not going to, that Christ is not going to come to mind if that is what they're confronted with. And so we think about attitude and, and, and we, we've looked at, as I said already, calling and leading and education. Those are things that, you know, that a leader recognizes as call. A leader is going to lead. Uh, a leader is going to uh, continue to educate themselves, whether it be through experience or through classroom work. But a leader is also going to have an attitude that is appropriate. Uh, they're gonna, and they're going to do things that affect the attitude. They're going to continually try to improve the attitude and to apply the attitude. And so tonight we're going to look over the idea of attitude. And this is the statement, and it's, it's, it's very, very simplistic. But it is very true as well. Great leaders are going to model Christ in all that they do. Their attitude is going to model Christ. There's much writing about attitude and the value of it and the importance of it, uh, the form of it, etc., the type of it. You just read much. I, I know as a young person, 
Uh, you guys are probably uh, tired of hearing about stuff like that, but I only have one life, and I'm the only one that lived it, so that is my experience. And uh, as, as a young person, uh, you know, uh, and especially as a teen, I probably heard more about attitude than any other aspect of my behavior. Uh, it was, I, I believe, uh, at the, in that moment, I thought that was the only thing my dad knew was attitude and what was wrong with mine, uh, specifically. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was intentional or if it just stood out to me because I had such a personal struggle with attitude. Uh, but it was constant. It was, it was unreal how constant it was. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I've heard that so many times that I almost wanted to run every time I heard it. And, uh, uh, and, and attitude does indeed affect many personality traits. For example, and, and uh, some of this stuff you're going to disagree with probably, but I want you to think about it a little bit. For example, many folks that would say that they are introverts. I'm one of those people. I would say that I'm an introvert. Uh, and by nature, I, I typically act like an introvert. Can I tell you that is attitude? Uh, now, you may or may not believe that, but it's attitude. You're, you're an introvert has a particular attitude that makes them introverted. Uh, someone might say, um, this is one particular, uh, they're not a morning person. <laughs> yeah, a lot of you guys in here, isn't there? Yeah, it's an attitude. It is an attitude. Uh, that you not being a morning person, that's an attitude. The morning is just like the evening. It's just another part of the day. <laughs> it is all about how you're looking at it as to whether or not you are a morning person or not. It is, it is an attitude. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's adaptable. The attitude is adaptable. The person with a gloomy outlook. Anybody in here friends with Eeyore? An Eeyore for a friend? I, I like Eeyore, by the way. If I had enough property, I'd have Eeyore in my backyard. Uh, uh, but that's an attitude. That gloomy perspective, that gloomy outlook, that pessimistic outlook, that is an attitude. The person with a sunny disposition, uh, that's an attitude. I, I don't know if you guys know it or not, but Carla's got two nicknames, Dimples and Sunshine. And uh, that is an attitude. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a glass half full type aspect. The person with the sunny disposition, the person uh, who loves school. That's an attitude. It is a, it's a thought process. It is a perspective of how they look at that thing. Every attitude is 100% adaptable. We are not stuck with one. There is adaptability. I've uh, shared several of occasions about how that when I was growing up, I developed an angry spirit is the only thing I know to call it. I, jokingly, I normally say I woke up when I was 13 years old angry. It took me until I was 19 to get over it. And I don't exactly know what that was. That really, truly did happen in my life. And, and I was, I was uh, very unhappy in those years. Um, but it was, it was an acquired attitude. 
when I look back on it in retrospect, it was influenced by the people I was hanging out with, by the music that we listened to, by the movies that I watched, the choices that I made daily. Those things all developed into this image of self and, and it combined to create that angry persona, that unhappy attitude. One way that that attitude presented itself for me was uh, indeed an aversion to mornings. Uh, and I would say at that time, I'm not a morning person. My dad found that out. Uh, he was intolerable. It was, it was almost like living with a bully for the first two hours of the day. There, it was nonstop. Uh, I would say, why don't you just leave me alone? You know that I'm not a morning person. And he would just, he was relentless. And it would typically end up in an argument. Uh, and he would talk to me. He would ask me questions. He would sit next to me, slurp his coffee, <laughs> suck his milk out of his spoon. He'd do anything he could to, I thought, just intentionally make me mad. But what he was trying to do, I recognize it. I recognize it because I did it to my kids. Uh, He's trying to get me to have a better perspective, a better attitude, because he knew uh, if I left that way when I got to school, I was going to present that way, and I did. Uh, and, and there was many times he would say to me, if you leave the house like this, X, Y, Z is going to take place. He usually did. Uh, he, he knew, and, and so it's an attitude. But you know, you know what? Uh, I, I'm, no, I'm now a morning person. I like mornings. Before I got married, I liked mornings. When we got married, I found out Dimples and Sunshine is not a morning person. <laughs> and I said to her, it's an attitude. And she was not Dimples and Sunshine anymore. <laughs> she said, move along. Move along. Get off of that subject. So... Attitude is so important because it's directly relatable to the personality that we present to others. That's, that's why it becomes an issue. It's, attitude is, is obvious. Uh, a grumpy person who is a curmudgeon can vastly affect their public persona with just a little bit of an attitude adjustment, right? And, and so it becomes an angry person who is a brawler can have just a little bit of a shift in attitude and suddenly they're just a passionate person with a fiery personality, right? There's, it's, it's little bitty things, but attitude is key. And the attitude that we should be striving for is more encompassing than whether we are a morning person or if we're grumpy or any of that. Often, in fact, I believe the way we spend time on our attitude is very trivial because we're affecting these things that they don't have any eternal value. And we're trying to accomplish these things that don't add up to any real development. But the mindset that we need, we're given the blueprint for. It's dictated for us. In Philippians chapter 2, and I know that you're familiar with this, the blueprint for the right mind is given. And, and, it, and it simply says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And there's a, there's a, a, a beautiful picture of the gospel in that passage, but what we recognize quite quickly is that there is an attitude that is acceptable. There is a mindset that is acceptable. There's a blueprint being given for us, and it is that what that mind that Christ had is the mind that we ought to be desiring to affect in our own lives and, and asking God for in our own lives. And so if we could very quickly identify two themes in that verse that we would recognize in describing Christ, it would be humility and obedience. That's the attitude. It's the idea of humility as in he humbled himself. As the verse states, he thought it not robbery to be equal to God. That simply means he didn't see it necessary to cling to equality. He was not defending his position. Now, think about that for a moment because that's where attitude comes from. In the defense of position, the defense of person, the defense of who I am. And, and so he did not see that. And then he also made himself of no reputation and became a servant. That is the mind or the attitude that we should seek to emulate. And when we consider the narrative of Christ's life that we're given, we see that humility played out with a certain confidence. His confidence would come from the certainty that he was God and that he was all-knowing and that he was indeed in control, that he would lay his life down, that he would take it up again. There was that, that quiet confidence. And so if we're seeking to reflect the mind of Christ, then we would say we need a confident humility. I think that's what we see in Joshua, by the way. I think we see a confident humility. We, we've looked at this passage, and that's the theme, confident humility, but I think it's rare. I think it's very rare in, in persons in charge, in persons in leadership. The, the confident humility, I, I don't want this to be corny, uh, but it is just how uh, the Lord expressed it to me some years ago when I was developing this study. But I, I've noticed, I've been around a lot of leaders and bosses. Uh, and, and so I've noticed people, and I'm confident that you have. And I think that you can divide them up into three particular classes. And I think you'll appreciate this, though it might be a little corny. I think there are... Uh, there are those leaders who are like a rooster. They're like a rooster. They are always ready to fight. They're defending every square inch of territory that they believe is theirs. And they'll throw down in a moment. Then there are those leaders that are like the peacock. If you've spent any time around a peacock, uh, you know that they are very chill looking, but occasionally they will flash their glory. And they'll throw it out and shake it so that you can 
see it. And that is the peacock. They're always ready to flaunt. Always willing to prove that they are indeed the peacock. And then there is the eagle. And that is that one who is flying way above mundane, everyday things. Their perspectives are pure. They're clear. They're not quick to engage. You ever seen a crow messing with a hawk? And the hawk just keeps on flying? He's not going to worry himself with that crow? It's, it's that picture for the, for the rooster. Oftentimes the rule is strike first and, and ask questions later. If you're supposed to be in charge and somebody else steps into the picture presuming to be in charge or even looking as if they could be in charge, then you have a situation and that rooster is going to act because everybody's watching and you've got to set it straight. And what we see in the rooster is a cavalier humility. There's, there's no humility at all. It's not real. And then for that leader who seems to be humble, but the humility that they practice is not a confident humility. It's a, it's a convenient humility. They can be humble when they need to be. But as soon as something goes against what they're doing, then that false humility will fall away and they'll flash their glory and show their true nature. Everybody's worked with this kind of person. That's a false, that's a convenient humility. And then the, the eagle type leader is confident. It is that confident humility means that you understand your strengths and your weaknesses. You have a firm grip on what's in front of you. You exercise your strengths and educate your weaknesses on a regular basis. I believe Joshua was that type of guy. I believe that Joshua was willing to grow but confident in who he was. I think we notice Joshua in this passage as a capable commander because he is not uh, enraged by this captain of the Lord of hosts. Uh, we see him out, uh, first off, I think it's very important to notice that he is surveying Jericho. I think that is a, a picture of leadership. We've spoke about that a little bit. Uh, he's out here formulating this strategy, how he's going to attack, how he's going to move along. He's out there alone, meditating, and then he notices that he's not alone anymore. And he sees uh, this uh, captain of the Lord of hosts, and we recognize that his first action is not attack. It is not retreat. In fact, he seems to be kind of at ease. And the, there's not frustration and domination, but rather investigation. Consider uh, this captain of the Lord of hosts would be an imposing figure with his sword drawn in enemy territory. And Joshua's response to him is, are you for us or our adversary? There's a certain confidence in that. Right, Because if he were a rooster-type leader, it would have just been on. right? It, he would have just jumped. 
But what he does there is at least three things we can notice. First, we see there's, there's this contemplation. I, I think it's important to note that when we see him, he's there doing what he should be doing. He's not somewhere he shouldn't be. He's ex exactly where he should be doing what a good leader does. He's planning. He's preparing. He's most likely praying. I, would, I think that we're safe to say that. He is, he is there, uh, the foreordained leader of God's chosen people. He's planning to do what God has prepared him for. He's soon going to be in battle against Jericho. That is a, a given fact. He's soon going to experience his first victory. I believe Joshua knew that to be true. And that first victory in the promised land, he's studying, he's contemplating, he's surveying his upcoming battle when he spots this captain whom Schofield refers to as the unseen captain. And I believe immediately that Joshua, the great warrior, saw the capability of the captain of the Lord of hosts. I don't think for a moment that Joshua looked at him and then disregarded his presence. I think immediately there would have been a revelation of capability and and. Maybe even concerned to the extent that hopefully the answer is going to be what I want it to be when I ask this question. Because maybe I don't want to be involved with that individual. We see this captain, for me, is, is tall. He's larger than life, fully exposed. He's not hidden behind anything. He's there showing himself. I, I would say that, that he's, ar he's got armor on and he's got his sword drawn, the Scripture says. And that's what I see. I see a large, menacing figure, somebody who would make an immediate impression but Joshua confidently is able to investigate rather than attack. I believe he knew at once that this soldier could, this captain could, and would fight. And I believe because of who he was, and that we'll see in a moment, that this captain would have been awe-inspiring. I believe that his capabilities would have been obvious. And in that moment, most leaders would have been challenged. But what Joshua does calmly in confidence is just says, are you for us or for our adversaries? The, the approach, that approach is, I'm just going to be a little transparent with you here, is foreign to my personality. That, that calm assurance in that moment, and it's probably a little bit far into you. You would probably prefer to, to get the first lick in, right? Make the first move. Joshua just asked, and there's, there's no challenge. There's no confrontation. There's no clamor, only this calm investigation. I've often thought of the tough guys that, that I love so much. Can't you just hear uh, Clint Eastwood growl? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Or that, that uh, loud Midwestern drawl that John Wayne had? Or maybe that, that cool confidence that you would see in a Kurt Russell or somebody like that? This, this engagement 
Joshua says to this menacing figure, just quite simply, hey, whose side are you on? Are we, are we going to have an issue? I, I think it speaks of confidence. Not, not like that, that noisy rooster, not like that flashy peacock, but confident, like, like the eagle flying above the distractions and the noise. Confident in his calling, confident in his destiny, confident in his legacy, confident in the power provided by the Lord, a confidence that is fueled by faith, and that faith says, my God has got this under control, and if I trust him, I will not be defeated. God's promised this land to me. He's going to be with me, uh, even the way he was with Moses. He's already fought this battle for me. I know he's won, a confident leader that is able to investigate before he initiates because he's humble. And humility is a Christ-like trait, something we ought to desire in our life. Look next at the recognition that we notice in verse 14. In verse 14, he said to him, uh, the captain answers and said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I'm now come. And Joshua recognized immediately who he was. There is a, a worshipful approach. And we recognize in the midst of the story the identity of the captain. Who is the captain of the Lord of hosts? Well, some would say to you that he is Michael, the archangel, uh, the so-called five-star general in the Lord's army. But... Uh, I, I don't believe that. I believe he's the pre-incarnate Christ. I believe he is a theophany. He's a picture of a Christ being there in that moment. And, and that, that's what I believe. And, and the, the captain of the Lord of hosts tells Joshua that he's on holy ground. That would support that. Angels never seek to be worshipped. In fact, every time you see an angel interact with someone, they'll tell them, don't worship me. I'm, I'm just like you. But this one doesn't stop the worship. In fact, he encourages it. Hey, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. I think we recognize very quickly because of other passages that we see this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The greater lesson for me in the passage is not so much in the identity of the captain. I think that's tremendous. But rather the reaction of Joshua because what has occurred here is that in this moment, Joshua is the supreme leader of the nation of Israel and one greater than himself has stepped on the scene and he has recognized that greatness and fallen worship to it. No competition. Just confidence in what he was called to do and recognition that this is the one who called me. We also see this illumination of Joshua that He's not concerned about his position or his power over the people. He's con simply concerned with his responsibility as it relates to this captain. What is responsibility in that moment? In that moment, his responsibility is to worship. It is, it is in that moment, this is the most important thing that can happen. I, I think we recognize that it's, this one is obviously greater, deserving of more honor and respect. And so there's no jealousy in Joshua. There's no envy. There, there's no type of reaction. Only 
respect and obedience. And can I tell you something? A true leader will display an ability to recognize this chain of command, if you will. That's a mundane term for what's happening, but it, it's almost a non-existent term for what goes on in society today. There is no recognition of that because everyone is lacking in the mind of Christ. Everyone's lacking in this Christ-like approach. Everyone is lacking in this humility. They've been told so many times how important they are that they can't comprehend when one more important comes in, when one higher up the food chain. These real leaders will display that ability to recognize the chain of command. They understand their responsibilities. And we know this about Joshua, not only from his recognition, but also look at his submission. Look in verse 14 again. What does he say there once he falls on his face and he does worship? What does he say? What saith my Lord unto his servant? You recognize that submission, that immediate submission? That's impressive. It should be impressive. He, he is... Joshua was an important individual. Not only was he important, he had people around him serving him. They were feeding that ego. It would be easy for that ego to get out, but Joshua has not allowed that to happen. He is, he is showing a form of greatness. It is a sincere interest that we see here. It's not lip service. It's sincere. It's very similar to the disciples that would follow Jesus. I've always found that very intriguing how uh, Jesus would say to, to, to Peter and, and Andrew, follow me, and they would go immediately. That he would find Matthew at the receipt of customs and say, follow me, and Matthew would drop all he's doing and go immediately. I think there was such an impression uh, by the Lord. We also remember how Saul of Tarsus, this this mighty man that was, was breathing out hate and, and fear among all of the Christians and all of that, but immediately in the presence of the Lord, he would say, Lord, what will you have me to do? We have a, a representation here of Joshua that way, that a superior was on the scene, that immediately all of that authority uh, would transfer, and he became the servant willingly and holy and that's what's required of a leader who models a Christ-like selflessness. It is the idea of seeking to accomplish God's will. Knowing, recognizing the importance of the moment. We also see this serious investment of the Savior. Look down at chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I've given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. The Lord is fighting this battle for Joshua. He's making this investment, if you will, in Joshua's future that would, in, that would uh, benefit the entire nation of Israel. But I want you to think about the serious investment that the Lord's made for you. And for me, now, the Lord Jesus Christ did not make some mighty walls fall down and defeat a nation for us. But rather, he took on our sin debt, something that we could never pay. And he conquered that 
death, hell, and the grave for you and I. That's quite an investment. And when, when it's managed right, it benefits the entire world because we become a conduit. We also see in this verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6 as he goes on to tell Joshua there how he's going to get the victory. There's some pretty silly intentions if you would think about it for a moment. It's odd. You're going to compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once, and that you're going to do for six days, and the seven priests will bear the ark before the seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day you compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. Can, can you imagine the reaction in that moment? It must have been difficult. It must have been hard for Joshua to, to comprehend what he had heard, but he was obedient to it. It must have been difficult to carry it out. Uh, just think about those on the wall for Jericho. It was probably a little worried the first time it happened, but there was probably some, some other things that occurred over the next six days, some laughter and some jest and... I mean, I can imagine that they're on these walls that are so thick and so high and so impenetrable, and these guys are walking around quietly. <laughs> I, you would, it sounds very uh, silly. It probably felt silly. probably looked silly, but you know that God chooses the base things. He chooses the simple things, the weak things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say it's written that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. There's a silly victory at Jericho, but uh, God uses the simple things all the time. You're a simple thing. I'm a simple thing. He would like to use you and I. We, we recognize this true leader and how he is using investigation to understand a situation, recognition and submission. He can enjoy the successes of these epic proportions. But for him to have success, he must first practice application. Well, how did Joshua practice application? Look back at verse 15 in chapter 5. Verse 15 in chapter 5. The captain of the Lord said unto of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off, the feet, off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. What is those next five, four words there? You know, I, my greatest desire is that, that somewhere, somehow, there'd be written down in some annals of heaven, and Corey did so. Wouldn't that be wonderful if... As the Lord uh, speaks to us and deals with us after he's made such a great investment in us 
and he's won such a marvelous victory for us that it would be written somewhere, and Scott did so, and Chris did so, and Kenny did so, that there would be this, this application that obedience would be immediate, that there'd be no, no argument, no resistance, no reluctance. I don't want to preach Sunday's message again, but, but that, we would, that we, would, we would do what God says to do. It's what we teach our children. We teach our children that obedience is doing what you're asked to do the first time. That's obedience. Everything else is a form of, but not the thing. And this, this picture of this confident leader understanding rank and following orders, and he does so as soon as he's first asked. And Joshua did so. We also see his, not only his obedience, but his observance of holiness. That he, he, he dares not tread on the name of God and joy in order to enjoy the autonomy and freedom of reign. He, he observed the holiness of God and responded in kind. Do we do that? Do, we don't do that. I could ask it rhetorically, but I'd rather just tell you that uh, we too often uh, take the autonomy that we are gifted by God and we run amok with it, much like the prodigal. And for a period of time, we waste uh, our gifts and abilities that God has given us on riotous living and worldly adventures. What if we were obedient and observant of holiness? We would look at Joshua, and you don't have to look over there, but in verse 20, this thing comes to a conclusion. In chapter 6, verse 20, the people shouted when the priest blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and took the city. Can I tell you that when God's chosen people follow God's chosen precepts, they will experience God's conquering perfection? And it's not any different today. If we obediently follow God, we will see God's victory in our life in our community, in our church. We have to model Christ in all we do and honor God and all honor honor God in all that we are a part of. And again, we know that we should let this mind be in us that was also in Christ. We would remember that Christ was the first who willingly gave up his authority for the honor of the Father and the salvation of the masses. He's the ultimate example of leadership. He's the ultimate example of confident humility. The question is, would we follow him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity tonight. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. And I pray that you would use them to encourage us and strengthen us and prepare us for all that lays ahead. Father, I pray you'd be with us as we go into our time of prayer now. In Jesus' name, amen.